I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Until writer Luis Alberto Orea inherited his mother's journals, he knew very little about what she'd seen and done in World War II. He certainly didn't know she'd been on the front lines of one of the most ferocious battles of the war. In fact, as he looked through the journals and his mother's scrapbooks, he would come to realize that her wartime experience was a defining period of her life, an experience that gave her nightmares until she died. Orea's new novel is not a biography of his mother, but it is inspired by her courage and valor. He writes, I have spent most of my life preparing to write this book. The new novel is titled Good Night, Irene, and Luis Alberto Orea joins us from Aspen, Colorado today. Welcome. I, I have been so eager to talk to you about this book, so it's a pleasure to have you with us. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. Hit me. I'm ready. All right. It sounds like your mother, like many veterans of wars, said very little to you about what happened there. And and I recently read an essay by a veteran who said that he doesn't talk about it because he doesn't want his loved ones to be as haunted as he is by the things mm. that he saw and did. And I wonder if that might be part of the reason your mother was so reticent to talk about it. I, I think so. I think a lot of veterans don't discuss it. In fact, the literally hundreds of people I have talked to, both on this kind of epic book tour, but also before, um, nobody will talk about it. And hmm. so many times, children of veterans will say, well, dad didn't talk. Mom was a nurse. She never talked. They wouldn't tell stories. But um, I actually discovered her stuff, her secrets in uh, her footlocker. The army gave all these Red Cross women footlockers, um, even though they were with the Red Cross. I was a little kid, fourth grade. My mother went to work, and she would always say to me, she was a New Yorker, you know, mm -hmm. a 40s New York mm -hmm. debutante, talked like this, called people darling. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Wish I could. <laughs> oh, let's just do it. And she would call me dear boy. And, uh, you know, she would tell me every day she went to work, dear boy, we're not going to open mother's footlocker. I said, no, mom. And finally, about fourth grade, I was getting rambunctious and I opened it. And it was full of all of her war materials, her leftover jackets and things she had, you know, pilfered from German officers' desks as they cleared Europe. Mm. And um, in the bottom of it was her portfolio of Buchenwald photographs that she had taken. Mm. And that's where it broke. The dam broke because she knew... You women are all psychic, I have learned. She came home and said, we've been in mother's case, haven't we? And I thought I had put it back together, you know. And uh, and she said, did you see some pictures? And I said, yeah, mom. And so she had to sit down and explain it. So, you know, to, to tell your little boy about the Holocaust, which you've been trying to put away, I think was a key that unlocked some of it. She must have guessed that in saying we're not going to open mama's footlocker that, you know, that would become a kind of shimmering, um, you know, box that you would inevitably <laughs> want to get into. She must have understood that. I think so. I think that 
a lot of the veterans wish they could or wish they could unburden themselves. And, you know, I, I have friends, veterans of recent wars, and, uh, you know, they carry they carry secrets and mm-hmm. I don't think they want to burden their families with it. And, you know, from the, from the couple of years working on the devil's highway book, I have border patrol friends and they don't want to talk about it. Really? So there, I think there are things that are just so toxic and overwhelming and it's also progressive. My mother was haunted by things. No question. For example, she left New York city in 1943 she came back after the war severely wounded. Uh, and all she would say to me was, dear boy, New York was no longer New York. Hmm. And so she fled New York in 1947 and never went back. Uh, her family lost track of her in 1947. Wow. And she was in San Diego, which she hated. But it felt later on almost like a chosen exile because everything one could do to help her go back to the life she missed so much, she resisted. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to miss what you've just said about maybe the comparison of what your mother and others witness in war and the psychic trauma that you heard from Border Patrol agents as you were researching The Devil's Highway. I mean, You know what I wonder if some element of this is I don't want to talk about what humans do to one another. I don't – there's a shame to it in some ways. I I think so. You know, I I teach writing in Chicago Mm -hmm. at the University of Illinois and uh, graduate workshops. And every once in a while I get a police officer or a soldier. And it didn't occur to me because I wasn't connecting those dots because it, you know, I wasn't really working on the book till a couple of years ago. But they too. And then I, th- I think when when suffering veterans or PTSD survivors, if they survive, uh, if they find someone that they feel comfortable with, they will confess. Mm-hmm. And it makes me understand. I was raised Catholic, and I thought confession was the weirdest thing on the planet because you get in a closet with some guy, and you know you're a kid. It's like a George Carlin routine. You're making up sins, you know. <laughs> w- uh, wicked thoughts, Father. W- wicked thoughts. Uh, you know, I was I was lazy and bad, Father. Mm. And then he'd tell you to say a hail mary, you know. But I do think that if if there is an ear that's open. And it's not dramatic and it's uh, you're not going to say, oh, my God, or how could you have mm. or any of that. That just sometimes people do want to get it off their chest. And what I learned working on Goodnight Irene is that people who had never told their families would tell me stuff. Wow. And part of it is because they loved these women so much, the donut dollies, as they were known, that you know, it was a it was an emotional upwelling that they wanted me to know. And, you know, get this detail right. Get this detail right. Hmm. This is a thing I saw. See if you can get it into the book. <laughs> yeah. Did did you know that your mother had nightmares and what they were about? Sister, sister, I lived with that. Yes. Wow. All night long. Oh. And you couldn't awaken her or she would jump out a window. She was... Yeah, nights were very difficult in our house. And, you know, 
And it's been, you get these revelations. I've been talking about this lately on the road, Mm -hmm. but you know, I think I owe being an author to my mother in so many ways. You know, she introduced me, of course, to literature. She used to read me Dickens and then Mark Twain and then, you know, Kipling. And I got the fever. But as the PTSD got worse, and it does get worse, uh, her nights were worse. Mm. And I became a teenage insomniac. I could not sleep. And this is this is a, you know, it's a glib statement, but it's actually fundamentally true that my nights consisted of myself in my bedroom listening to Leonard Cohen, wanting to do what Leonard Cohen could do. And uh, sooner or later, that led to a notebook. Were there particular songs of Cohen's that were soothing <laughs> in the middle of all that? Um, more haunting. You know, he, he was so incredible in that he had this taste for the sacred and the profane at the same time. And he had this incredibly deep reservoir of darkness that I didn't understand, but that spoke to me, you know, and then of course, Jim Morrison, you know, and Bob Dylan. I mean, there were all these singers, but, but something about Leonard Cohen. And I believe that part of it which I never understood, perhaps till just now talking to you, was that his elevated and intellectual diction and language was from my mother's world. Certainly not Mm -hmm. from the barrio in Southeast San Diego. The beautiful phrasing that he has, the the the, the kind of uh, $15 words. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Right, that he uses. Oh yeah, was I was mom. the world's worst student, but I would I would look up Leonard Cohen words, and a, a singer that became a good friend of ours, Sean Phillips. Mm. He always had ridiculously obscure words, but it got me better grades in English because you know <laughs> we had vocabulary tests. I throw in a couple. You know what I wondered um, as I finished the novel was if your mother had described. If the conversation about what she had seen and done had been open through your growing up years, um, whether you would have felt as compelled to write about this. I mean, yeah, what do you think? Yeah. You still would have? Yes. I, no, she opened up bit by bit, but not entirely. Um, and I can tell you a couple of incidents here that might clarify this for you. So, yeah, she had the dreams. And every once in a while, she would talk. Mm-hmm. And I could never tell when she was going to talk. But for example, the I don't want to give too much away, but the passage in the middle of the novel where the apocalypse hits them mm-hmm. in a little unknown village. Mm-hmm. My mother was there. And there were three things. And this may tell you all you need to know about her haunting. Three things that are, are anchors through that section of the book. Number one, they got there. They were ahead of the troops mostly, but there were some Americans there already. It had been liberated, they thought. And the mayor of the town came to them, and he had been tortured by the by the Gestapo, and they had taken his eye out. And he had his little girl and his wife. And those the parents begged the women in the truck to hide the little girl oh, and drive her out of my there. Gosh. 
And they turned them down, believing George Patton was on his way. The guys are already here. We have liberated you. And our our rules, we can't take passengers like that. So, you know, be at peace. And the, the guy begged them. And after the apocalypse, they never found her. Mm. They never saw them again. So she had this burden of, of guilt that she may have denied that child salvation the second thing was they were trapped in a town and i'm 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 conglomerating all of these into that one town because mm-hmm. it's fiction you know mm-hmm. she she spent a night hiding listening to the panzer tanks coming down the the narrow streets crushing the cobbles and at random driving into buildings to knock them over and they would fall but the worst thing, and I don't know how to say it in any polite way, but she hid in a barn with one of her friends, one of her teammates, and they buried themselves in hay because of the atrocities going on outside, uh, specifically atrocities addressed to women. And I think that is the gist of her nightmares because she prayed, please, God, let them stay out there doing what they're doing and not find me. And she felt so guilty about that prayer that she had done something so terrible, but she was so afraid. And that almost immediately followed with liberating Buchenwald. So you can imagine. I think of her maybe not being able to see what's happening but hearing the sounds mm-hmm. of exactly. the atrocities oh man because it's entirely in your mind you are imagining what you're hearing and you're trying not to hear it and uh, i i honestly think that that was the gist of of it though you know as you know from the novel every 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 sort of signpost through the novel is actually biographical truth about my mother's life, Mm -hmm. which I then used as the skeleton on which to build this novel. So she really did escape a bad relationship in New York, really did volunteer for the Red Cross, really did go for training in Washington, really did sail across the Atlantic in an armada, landed in England, did service in Liverpool, went to Glatton, to the Glatton B-17 base, and then they went six days after D-Day and landed on Utah Beach. And then they drove across Western Europe, oh, Europe with Patton. And the things that didn't fit, because you know it would be a thousand-page-long novel, but they took part in the liberation of Paris. They took part in the liberation of Brussels. They were trapped in the Siege of Bastogne. They were trapped in the Battle of the Bulge. And then they went to Weimar, and that's when Patton told them, I need you to go up the mountain which they did. And then she was nearly killed in a hideous accident. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my conversation this hour with author Luis Alberto Odorea about his new book, Good Night, Irene. As you can hear as our conversation develops, um, as noted, this is not a biography of his mother's experience before, during, and after the war. World War II, but it is inspired by those experiences and her courage and valor and the things that she gradually uh, spoke about 
uh, to Luis. Again, the novel's titled Good Night, Irene. I want to talk about how your mother got into the war and how that um, how that kind of worked its way into the novel. So as the United States is entering World War II, the Red Cross, and I didn't know this, was not only looking for nurses, but they were looking for other personnel. And, and, what, yeah. and who were they looking for? They were looking for 27-year-old women who, and that's just a thumbnail, but pretty in, in the realm of 27, um, who had education, preferably a little college. And uh, they were volunteers, though they were given a stipend you know, for living costs and so forth. And they were to join the Club Mobile Corps. And this was Ike's genius in a way mm-hmm. that the Red Cross had always set up what they called clubs for enlisted men or officers. And those were also known as donut dugouts because they had coffee makers and donut makers and magazines and newspapers and they could the guys could smoke and they could play parcheesi or card games with these women. And um, it was Ike who thought, let's make it mobile. Let's put the club on the back of a two and a half ton GMC flatbed truck, <laughs> which they did. So this was already, and can you imagine my mom, you know, this this uh, 40s movie starlet, dear, <laughs> in a two, two and a half ton truck. And I want to say, by the way, we make, we make the novel sound grim, but the genius of these women is that they were a riot. Oh, they were, yeah. You, they were free. They were free on the world to do whatever they needed to do, you know. So anyway, they did that, um, and the truck corps was formed, and they immediately were given the nickname Donut Dolly, and most of them apparently didn't really appreciate that. <laughs> and so there's that theme in the book when they call them that. Uh, Dorothy, the driver, always says, don't call me Dolly. <laughs> So we loved that so much we made pins to so say, don't call me Dolly. That, you know, That's early great. on in the book tour, it didn't work. Now everybody wants to don't call me Dolly. I want to don't uh, call me Dolly. Oh, pins. I'll send yeah. you. We have all kinds of – oh, we'll send you all kinds of Yay. But, oh. um, yeah, so they did that and then they they trained in Washington, D.C., and they had to learn how to make the donuts. My mother, of course, a disaster at making donuts. <laughs> Um, and so on. They learned to drive the truck or try to drive the truck. They had to shoot a pistol. They had to learn to use gas masks. They had to get all the horrible injections. And uh, then they sort of went invisible. Some of the stuff I couldn't talk about in the book, just for space, not for any reason, but they found out that G-men in, in, in uh, sort of street garb were constantly hanging around the hotels where they were staying to try to get them to spill the beans a little bit. And thus, the unfit women could be called out immediately because they really? couldn't keep a secret. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And it was just a little tight. Like, wow. you see a little sentence and you think, oh, that's rich. That's really rich. <laughs> well, there, there's this wonderful scene, and it's early in the novel, where um, the char- the women have joined the core but they don't the red cross but they don't quite know what they're what they're going to be doing and captain marjorie miller is <laughs> briefing the women about what they're going to be doing as part of this club mobile corps and she says to them right. 
General Eisenhower's Nobody's Fool. You are hereby ordered to be big sister, girl next door, mom or sweetheart to each one of these brave boys. You are nothing less than home. That's so profound. I mean, she's also, she's acknowledging that this is going to be terrifying and lonely and dangerous for both the service men and the women who are going to support them, right? Yeah, I think that's that sobering moment. And I can confess to you, since we're just among friends, (laughs) that I thought, this is the feminist, this is the women's opening scene of the movie Patton. (laughs) You know, when Patton gets up (laughs) and is explaining to those boys what's going to happen to them, I thought, wait a minute. You know, these women are going into the same exact place. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, this is this is also a way to try to establish the the stakes for the reader because I found out pretty quickly nobody had ever heard of these women. In fact, my my wife Cindy and I do all these projects together. She's a reporter, so it's quite helpful because I'm, you know, I'm some sort of semi hippie. <laughs> I like to read haiku kind of person. Uh-huh. And she was asking me, so what did your mom do? And I said, was it Donut Dolly? And she said, a what? I said, you know, the Donut Dollies. And she said, what? And I said, the donut, the women in the two and a half ton trucks with a kitchen in the back that went into combat to make donuts and coffee. And she yelled, what? <laughs> she knew a good story yeah. when she heard one. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and my mother so adored Patton that I thought, you know, I, I couldn't shake the feeling that somewhere – she was watching what I was doing. Hmm. And uh, and I didn't mean for it to turn into that, but it did. And I was so happy it did. And I can tell you as a little footnote here, not to digress, because I think this is pretty central to this experience. But when I was a kid, when Patton came out, and she came to me and she said, dear boy, we're going to go downtown. <laughs> I said, we are? And she said, yes, we're going to go see Patton. And I thought, oh, great. Patton, as if I want to see a movie about some general. And we went down to the California Theater in San Diego, and we watched Patton, and then we watched Patton, and then we watched Patton three times. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, but I was starting to watch my mother, and she was reenacting the scenes, and she was she'd reach up toward the screen, and she'd tap me, and she'd say, those pistols Oh, those pistols. Okay, the pistols, yeah. And then, but in the scene where Patton slaps the kid who's got PTSD, who's got battle fatigue, Mm -hmm. all three times she said to me, he shouldn't have done that. He he knew better. He shouldn't have done that. On the way home, and this may be the beginning of writing this book when I was, you know, in junior high Mm -hmm. school, she just had this look of, she was transported and she turned to me and she said, Georgie Patton was a very naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at her like, what are you talking about? Right. She, Marjorie Miller tells these women, um, you are here to become America itself. Is yeah. that the genius that you, you're talking about that Eisenhower – understood yes. and that Patton basically executed. Yes, that they, you know, they were going to, for so many of those boys, be the last 
friendly, caring face、mm-hmm. they ever saw in their lives. Wow. And I think the burden of that is pretty heavy. And, you know, I don't think that they even then comprehended. I don't think you can possibly comprehend until you're in the middle of it. And the place I think where it started to, to assert itself to them was when they went to the air base、uh, in Cam- Cambridgeshire in England, the Glatton Air、mm. Base. They were、mm-hmm. all over that region. It's all dotted with American air bases. And、uh, the, the great, and it's in the book, the, the great little detail that we could not. Neither Cindy nor I leave behind was at Clark Gable, was at the next airbase. <laughs> and we were like, You know, my mom bar- borrowed a Jeep to look for Clark Gable.、Um, but、uh, they, they were there and they were stationed in the town next to the airbase. They were on the base all day, often all night, every day, attending to every flight, going in and going out. And there is no record that they were ever there. In fact, the base is, is a curated、uh, base, and we visited it, and they were so astonished. No one had ever heard of it. There were no photographs of it. We had a photograph of it. Wow. And、uh, they drink、mm. toasts to the, to the women now. Really? To their memories. Yeah. So y- your mother lived in a, I love the details from that, that part of her experience and how you've put it in the novel. They. Irene and Dorothy live at Gallatin in this thatched cottage near、yes. a stream and in the woods. And you saw the cottage <laughs> that your mother actually lived in. Is that right? Oh, yeah. In、oh, fact,、wow. I don't know if you have the hardcover、yeah. or the,、oh, the ARC. I have、so、the that ARC. Picture, oh, darn it. We'll, have to, we'll, we'll get them to send you because Little Brown, they were so cool. They made. A photo montage of photos of my mom in combat and her patch. They colorize them. So when you open the book, first of all, every time I open the book to sign it, she's staring at oh, me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I feel like, okay, mom, I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> But、uh, there's a picture there of the house. She, they were in the second story of the house. And this is the detail I adore that the bottom story was John Ford's film crew. Making、oh, a documentary、yes. about the airbase. And so they felt completely secure. They had these crazy, you know, wearing army clothes, but they were Hollywood cameramen and things on the bottom floor. And she, as she put it, it was a continual cocktail party. The guys were down there drinking cocktails and they would come down and have, a, have an improvised picnic on the spot and drink. They were safe. But there's a picture of her looking out of her window <laughs> up into the sky. Um, and we had our daughter who never met her grand, grandmother, you know.、Um, and she was the same size as my mom. My mom was 5'3. And I took her to that and I said, See that? That's the picture. That's the, the window from the picture. Your grandmother was looking out at the, at the bombers going overhead. So it was crazy. And then across the street, there was a, a gentleman who was a. Famous author at that time in England named Beverly Nichols.、Hmm. And his house, she used to go visit because it was across the road. It, it was still there. And we went, we taking pictures. And I've been enjoying talking about this, but you know, being England, to me, England is, is always partly Monty Python. And there was a Monty Python moment where we didn't know that the owner of the house was in the kitchen window watching all this. And suddenly he burst out and he said, Hello there. And we said, Oh, hello. And he said, What you doing? 
well, we're taking pictures. Why? Of my house? Yes, because of my mother, blah, blah, blah. And he thought for about a split second and said, well, you'd better come in then. Mm. And we got to go into the parlors. And and that kind of stuff happened over and over. Um, and you'd find her so much so that on the airbase, the, the, the man watching over it asked me if he, I wanted to walk because the landing strips are all there. Mm -hmm. And we walked mm -hmm. my daughter and this gentleman and myself, and he stepped off of the runway and dug around in the grass and pulled up a triangular, triangular chunk of tarmac. And he handed it to me and he says, this is, this is the runway and you should take this with you because your mom might've stood on it. Huh. Wow. Right. Wow. That was amazing. There's a there's a um, a scene here where you're writing about how mail comes to Irene and Dorothy when they're at Gladden. So I thought I would just <clears throat> read a little bit of this, and then you can tell me about the letter. Uh, yes, mail found them even at Gladden. Soldiers simply addressed their letters to the crew of the Rapid City, which was the name of the club mobile, right? Right, and wrote. Care of ARC or care of U.S. Army on the envelopes and the letters managed to make their way to the women. I used to think our service was foolish, Dorothy confessed, until you showed me this. What did you think we were going to do, said Irene, who held the letter she just shared with Dorothy. Kill Nazis. Well, they were not doing that, but the letter encouraged them that they were making a difference. And here's right. the letter. Dear Irene, Ellie, and Dorothy. You won't remember me, but I never forgot you. I came off the troop ship in Liverpool more frightened than I had ever been in my life. I did not think I had the wherewithal to disembark, much less march into war. I was trying to hide my terror from the other guys, but all I could think of was home. My hands were shaking, and then I saw you. I saw friendly faces, and you were kind to me, welcoming me. I know I was just a face among hundreds of faces, but you looked in my eye and gave me some coffee and made me laugh. I just wanted you to know I have carried you in my mind every day since. Every time I see a clubmobile, I hope it's yours. In gratitude, a soldier, Bradley. That makes me, that kind of chokes me up to read that. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. Um, this this is an interesting thing. And I'm glad we're at this letter. I was excited when you told me you were going to bust out a letter because mm. it it it's going to move us a little over toward the character of Dorothy. Mm -hmm. But um yeah, uh, my mother, I think one of the reasons she took the geographic cure, you know, and fled her roots mm -hmm. is that she, I don't think she could bear receiving letters. And those women got letters for years. She never did. If she did, she threw them away. But we found through a strange miracle her her truck driver um and uh you know she she was she was incredible Jill Pitts, mm -hmm. and she was six one six two at the time, so you can imagine what a cute little team they made, <laughs> my little mom and big tall all right and uh, Jill was a hoosier, you know she wasn't she wasn't fancy like my mother, but she was quite brilliant. Anyway, Jill had saved all the letters, and she passed away. We were friends with her from the age of 94 to 102. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And so much of the actually ordered and sane 
memories of this were thanks to her. And when she died, she was affiliated with the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Um, and they had they were taking all of her archive and making a, a you know, a, a Jill Pitts collection. Uh, but they let us, because of our history with her, have an entire day with all of it. Nobody watching us, just, you know, here it is, do what you need to do. And we, you know, we knew all of her photos, we knew all the photo albums, but we hadn't ever taken the time to read the letters. And of course we were taking pictures like crazy of the letters, but that letter was among them. And it was so haunting and beautiful, but there were many, many, and some really badly with bad grammar, you know, it's just a working stiff. Mm -hmm. Um, And this leads to a little thing, but it's a major thing for me. And that is the, the romance Irene has with the pilot, mm-hmm. the handyman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had already written those things, trying to figure out how to handle that situation. Thanking God it was a novel <laughs> because it's not about my mom. It's this woman having a love affair. Um, but I, Miss Jill had a lot of photo albums, well curated. And one of them was black and it was her personal photo album. And she said, here, Lewis. She always called me Lewis. She didn't say that Louise. (laughs) Lewis. And she said, Lewis, look at these. I said, oh, yeah. You know, it was all black, beautifully mounted. And I'm thumbing through it. Ah. And I'd sometimes show it to Cindy. She she had a weird sense of humor. So she had a an army condom package in her. And the condom, in the scrapbook, you, you mean? In her scrapbook. Oh, really? Huh. And his name was Speedy. It said Speedy. <laughs> and it had some weird yeah, bombs coming at him. And we were dying. You know, I thought, okay, keep a straight face. You know, Miss Jill had a sense of humor. And I turned the page, and there's my mother at Cannes, those scenes in Cannes that are in the mm-hmm. novel. Oh, yeah. They had been sent there as, as a reward for all the heavy duty they had done. And she's on the beach looking cute, her usual little stance, you know. And I, I was like, look at my mom. Oh, I turned the page and there's this lout, this big lout of a man. <laughs> and he's draped all over my mom. You know that look the guy gets like, <laughs> possessive. Yeah, yeah. I won this lottery, man. You know? Yeah. And I said, Miss Jill, who's this? And she looked at it and she started to smile and she said, uh, that's Jake. And I said, Jake, who's Jake? And she just stared at me and she said, Lewis, it was a war. Little pause. We all had men. And I did not know what to make of this, you know, a 98 year old woman Mm -hmm. (laughs) telling us about her (laughs) combat love life. But then I thought, oh, my God, my mother did have joy. She did. There were things that were good. It's not just going to be some melodramatic, oh, awful, awful, awful. Mm -hmm. And the more I knew Jill and the more I knew her sense of humor and the more I knew my mother's, who was capable at any moment of bursting out in this tinkling bell laugh. And the thing about the novel and what you need to know is that I didn't know how to write it or what to write or what. And Jill is the one who gave me the key. And that is because Cindy found her alive. We thought they were all dead. 
she lived eight, 90 minutes from our house, oh which seemed gosh. unlikely in the extreme. Wow. My mom's best combat buddy, her driver, you know, she always called her in her memories, darling Jill. So we rushed down to, to meet her. She let us in on her wall, a framed portrait of my mom. And she said to me, Louis, I drove the truck, but your mother brought the joy. And I suddenly saw her. There she was, 27, glamorous, a hero. I know she saw herself as probably a, a Hemingway hero of some sort, <laughs> going out to save boys in trouble and being the source of joy. And it made me re-see things. All I could see was the struggling woman I grew up with. But when I went back into her photographs, I realized in every single photograph, even on the front line, she's smiling. And then I knew that that woman, that delightful, you know, debutante socialite was crushed. You're listening to a conversation with novelist Luis Alberto Orea about his new novel, Good Night, Irene. Here's what I did not expect was how powerful and convincing your rendering of the friendship between Irene and Dorothy would be. Mm -hmm. Because it, it's it, – as many friendships between women are, it's deep and it's fractious – and sometimes it's judgmental, and it's <laughs> loving all at the same time. And you really, you really captured that. Well, thank you. I guess I wonder how. How? <laughs> I mean, female friendship is so complicated. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Uh, I was raised almost entirely by women, honestly. My mom was the only American in my entire family, so... You know, there were all these matriarchies within my family. And I I was watching, trying to figure it all out, because my father, who was muy Mexicano, even though he looked like Errol Flynn, okay? My grandmother was named Guadalupe McMurray. So <laughs> a bunch of redheads and blondes, <laughs> wow. you know? But all of them speaking Spanish. Oh and um, and I, I, I started to see... That I didn't really care what the men wanted to say to me because I was so entranced by these matriarchal figures. There was always an uh, an old woman who, not like my San Diego life, was just you know some old woman. They were they were queens. They were matriarchs. They were almost keepers of wisdom and history. So they were always teaching me things and. And there were several families that I was involved with that were run by women. And I I realized that they let the men come in, bellow, stomp around, sort of like their roosters they had in the backyard. And as soon as they were either worn out or went back out to impress the other dudes, <laughs> they took over the world again. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I had that in my mind. And, you know, I've always had a lot of... of women friends I, I and I probably because I'm an artist I found that certainly in high school can you imagine I mean I you know I went to a high school the school that became Ridgemont High nudge nudge wink wink in uh -huh. San Diego uh -huh. 
And, uh, you know, all those guys were football players, not me. All those guys had money, not me. They could dance, pretty much not me. They didn't, I didn't have nice clothes. I didn't have anything but my notebook. And I found out that the girls I was going to school with would actually read my notebooks and give me thoughtful response. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought I'm, what I can't do is betray these women's humanity. I can't, I can't do that manly thing, you know? Also, I had Cindy to answer to. And you may not know this, but the person who discovered me and started my writing life in Sirius was Ursula Le Guin. Wow. And, you know, you do not, you do not write stupid male things (laughs) around Le Guin. So she was also a presence, you know, she hovered over it a lot. You know, you've, you've confirmed, I guess, what I wondered about, which is whether you've, you've spent a lot of time kind of bearing witness to what, what that bond between women is like and how they sound and... I should say how we sound when we're, you know, in a community of friendship or or that we're related to one another. You've it sounds like you've done a lot of listening to that. I guess so, but you know, I it's greed. I I love it, and I love, you know, I I love a feeling of shared humanity and trust. Um, you know, the the barrio I grew up in. Of course, I was born in Tijuana, but, you know, we, we settled in southeast San Diego and not quite tenements, but a block of run-down, awful apartments. And there was racial war all the time. It was, you know, white versus brown versus black. And depending on what corner you were on, it was very dangerous. And here I was, Irish-looking lad, and I had a strong Tijuana accent. This is the way I used to speak when I was a little boy. <laughs> and you can imagine, I was like a, I was like a one-man peace movement because they could all beat me up you know um but i've always tried to find that that thing that connects us rather than divides us and that that's that's very important to me it it always was and i knew that i wanted to write this book for women mm-hmm. i wanted to write this book and say don't even don't even pay attention to my gender just this story and all, I, at every stop, I can tell when it connects because the women in the audience start to cry. It's incredible. And, you know, and I always have to tell the men, and I do it now, it's part of the tour. I say, my brothers, nothing against you. I love you. But the women in this room are the actual heroes. And that's especially when the older women, they start to cry. But I mean it. And I, I don't think there's anything worse in the world than rejecting someone's value, someone's heroism, mm-hmm. just because it isn't Steve McQueen driving a Mustang through San Francisco. You know, this is, this is wrong. And I saw my mother feeling made more invisible as her life went along and feeling forgotten and gray and you know that now we know that was so very not true but i think it's the terrible illusion that the our culture i guess the world's culture often puts on human beings and i don't like it 
you know, I, I want there's so much laughter and humor in the novel. And I really mm. love that. And now that I've heard you describe your your conversations with Miss Jill, I wonder if she, you know, related that to you. Um, or, or you just assumed that when you're in these, ex, you know, you're an extremist, you're in war, you've bonded with the people you're experiencing that with, there is going to be, there's going to be catharsis and laughter. How did you understand yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. She, um, you know, Miss Jill was a laugh riot. <laughs> Why she? <laughs> Making no mistake. Oh my God. Wow. She was hilarious. Um, and uh, my mom, too, when she was feeling well, was f- f- just funny as anyone. And, all you know, I I think I don't know any unfunny friends, probably because they don't stay my friends very long. Mm. Um, I, I, I resonate to that bell-like sound of people with joy. But I also think that, you know, it was self-medication. If, if you know, again, with the Border Patrol guys, they're, they're hilarious. They didn't trust me. They thought, "Well, what's this? What's this wet back want?" You know, and they and they tortured me psychologically <laughs> at first, and I was so angry and hurt, and it hit me all of a sudden that they were protecting themselves. They were trying to see what was my agenda, and when they realized I wanted to see them as fellow people, they melted like puppies. But I think that's I think that's that's our calling. I really do. So, yeah, she was funny. My mom was funny. Jill was funny about the war, whereas my mom really wasn't, though she even told some stories repeatedly, interestingly not about combat, that made her fall over laughing. And one of them was when they were going to cross the English Channel Mm -hmm. and they went out drinking with the captain of the cargo ship they were going on the night before and they all got so drunk they couldn't find the ship and the docks were foggy and they were holding this guy up and they'd have to go from ship to ship and he'd yell ahoy are you my ship (laughs) and they would yell down what ship is it he'd yell the name and they'd say sorry mate and my mom and jill dragging this guy from ship to ship you know so i think uh, yeah i think it's just so human there's nothing that 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 makes us, I think, more related and human than laughing together. Don't you think? I do. I think that's right. I, I take it Miss Jill did not live, although she lived a very long life, she did not live to see the publication of the novel. Is that right? No, no. And uh, that was heartbreaking to me because without her, I don't think we'd have a novel. Um oh. No, she. We we went to her hundred and first birthday party, and w- what was sad is that her memory was was fading, you know, and so we were losing her. But yeah, she she knew what I was doing, you know. She when when we first met her, the first day we met her, she showed us she had the actual map that she had used driving all over Europe. Wow. And it has oh her notes gosh. on it and all that. I know. And she oh. said, basically, I'm I'm willing to share a lot of these things with you, but you can't have my map. And I said, I don't want anything. <laughs> Both of us said, we don't, don't give us anything. We just want you to talk to us, which was the, the ground rules. But, you know, and just so you know, she was also, she was also affected by it, but she was not my mom. And she had such a steely will. 
that when she got upset, she would announce it to us. I think I'm going to be sad now. <laughs> and then she, she'd put her hand over her eyes and shade her eyes for about 30 seconds and put it down and say, so, as I was saying. Oh, wow. Just like, wow, Jill. And she also loved Manhattans. Hmm. And she liked to be taken out to lunch. And we would take her to the country club. And she loved having a bow, so she'd always put her arm through mine, you know. And she always had the same little joke. She had trouble getting out of the car. And she'd say, well, you know, the back of my lap is bigger than it used to be. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And I would take her arm, and we'd walk up, and all the staff knew her. And they'd greet her, oh, Miss Jill, Miss Jill, you look like you need a little joy juice. Hmm. And she'd say, hmm, joy juice. I don't think so today. No, on reflection, how about a double? <laughs> and then as soon as she started sipping the Manhattan, she'd get really naughty. And her eyebrow would go up, and then she'd get really funny. And you could see the years just going. She went, she was the woman driving the truck. It was amazing. Isn't it interesting how she processed the experience so differently than the way your mother processed the experience? Yeah. I'm sure you've thought about that. Yeah. So much so that they lost track of each other in 1954. My mother withdrew even from Jill. My gosh. And and why? Do, do you now understand better as to why that happened? PTSD. People, people isolate. Some people, you know, they can't be reminded. Um, I think part of her horror is that she didn't like where she had ended up. You know, this is a woman. Your mother, had, you mean? My mother, yeah. yeah. No, Jill was happy. She traveled the world. She married a man she adored. She, you know, lived in Champaign-Urbana in the same building all those years. She was one of the heroes of the town. She was Jill. She would get in the Jeep every, you know, Memorial Day parade and ride through in her uniform waving her flag. And, you know, uh, but my mom, I think, was maybe heartbroken that she had broken something was wrong and it, it was it was you know it was uncontrollable and for example on our second visit to see jill i had a bust my mother had done in france by an artist that he'd made a clay bust of my mom mm -hmm. and this was jill had gone home before my mom and my mom was wounded after jill was gone okay I took it down there and I took it out and I put it on her table and she said, who's this? I said, well, that's, that's Phil. And she looked at it and she said, that's not your mother. And I said, that's, that's my mother. Yeah. And she said, but she looks sad. Hmm. So already, you know, trying to recover from the shock of what happened to her physically, it already had, had broken something. Mm-hmm. So you don't know whether your mother, how your mother would have felt about you fictionalizing this or writing so many of her experiences into, or do you have a sense of that? <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, you always wonder, you know, you hope you're doing justice. I think she would have been very happy that I wrote a fiction and didn't try to write her biography. Oh, because really? first, Yeah, because first of all, that's a little too personal, if you know what I mean. And secondly, it was impossible. There was no actual history, uh, though her journals honestly were so 
horrible for me to read that I gave them all to Cindy to read because I, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Um, and you know, I think, I think I got the essence of what she was trying to talk about. And the point being this, this woman who faced the impossible odds and served her country and then was wounded, you know, and she didn't often talk about it, but when she did, it was pretty intense. She showed me her broken body. She showed me her legs, her abdomen. Um, and then cryptic things would come out, and I realized it was the war. I was suffering something once, and I told her I wanted to have this heart-to-heart talk and a revelation, and she just looked at me. And she said, dear boy, I am in pain every single day of my life. That was scary. I thought, oh, God, Joan Crawford just came in the room, you know? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know what to do with it. It was chilling. So, yeah, I think she would be actually very happy. Cindy's had to sort of comfort me at times when I think, oh, my God, I've betrayed things. But What does Cindy say about that? She would be happy that, you know, that she and Jill are driving around heaven in a donut truck laughing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the novel is titled Good Night, Irene, Luis Alberto Urea's latest novel. I thought we could close with some Leonard Cohen. How's that? Oh, my. Yeah. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. This was wonderful. Come over to the window, my little dog. I'd like to try to read your poem I used to think I was some kind of gypsy boy Before I let you take me home Now so long 